0: Welcome to Claim the Stage, a podcast for women who want to discover, awaken, and create their voice through the art of public speaking. I'm your host, Angela Lucier, award-winning professional speaker, author, and CEO and founder of The Speaker Sisterhood. Here we are, episode 116, How to Turn Your Life Experiences into a Speaking Business with Josh Shipp. Josh is such a cool guy. I can't wait to get to the interview. But before we do, I want to share a couple things. First, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to my interview with Seth Godin yet, but I have received so many nice emails about that episode and Mostly it was about Seth's reaction to me sharing that I'm pregnant. And (laughs) a lot of people emailed to say, you had me crying on the treadmill or I was crying at the grocery store listening to your podcast. (laughs) And, you know, at the time, I think I was so freaked out while doing the interview that it didn't really occur to me how special that moment was. But when I went back and listened to it, I was like, wow, that is like such a sweet, response that he had and I just really appreciate hearing from so many of you and that you enjoyed it and you got a lot from it so thanks so much for sharing and being part of this podcasting journey with me the pregnancy update today I am 28 weeks pregnant I just got into the third trimester I am large and in charge my belly is huge (laughs) I keep like hitting it on things (laughs) Not like hard, but you know, I, I open the door and I don't provide enough space for my stomach or I go to push myself in with a, at a table in the chair and I kind of hit the table and I'm realizing I don't really have good spatial awareness because I'm not used to my stomach protruding like this, but I'm getting used to it and sleep is elusive <laughs> at the moment, <laughs> but so far I feel pretty good. I was really sick last week, but I don't think that was pregnancy related. I think it was just a stomach bug. But anyway, today's episode is sponsored by Told Video, original, thoughtful storytelling for your brand, here to help you with your next step in marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world, get it told. You can contact Rebecca, the owner, through June 1st to receive a pack of four 15-second social media videos along with your full video. Reach out for a free phone consultation and quote to find out more at toldvideo.com. Okay, today's guest is someone I recently found out about when he emailed me to say that he likes the podcast. So I clicked on the link in his signature and I found out what an amazing guy he is and I asked him to come on because I wanted to interview him about his life. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Statistically, Josh Shipp should be dead, in jail, or homeless. But his success as a preeminent author, speaker, and global youth empowerment expert is living proof of the power of one caring adult. A former at-risk foster kid turned youth advocate, Josh is renowned for the documentary TV series on A&E that followed his groundbreaking work with youth and families. He has written two national bestsellers to date, The Grown-Up's Guide to Teenage Humans, a winner of the Nautilus Gold Award for Parenting and Family, and The Teen's Guide to World Domination. Thanks to the support of teachers, counselors, and a wonderful set of foster parents, Josh went on to be listed on Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 list and is now a postgraduate student at Harvard, further honing his skills in persuasive communication. Josh is regularly called upon by Oprah, CNN, Fox, The New York Times, 2020, Good Morning America, and others to provide commentary on common challenges faced by parents and teachers. Over the years, Josh has keynoted events for countless groups of parents, educators, and social workers with audiences as large as 55,000 and to date has spoken live in front of more than 2 million people. Viral clips of his acclaimed presentations have been viewed an estimated 50 million times online through platforms such as Upworthy, Goldcast, and BuzzFeed. The interview you're about to hear is all about how to turn your life experiences into a passion project and a business. So Josh is going to share how he ended up as a speaker, who that one caring adult was for him, and how he got started on this path how he turned his struggles into a business, and so much more. So without further ado, here is today's interview with Josh Shipp. All right, Josh Ship, welcome to Claim the Stage.
1: Angela, how the heck are you?
0: So good. So excited to be talking to you. You have such an interesting story. You have so much to share with the world. And I'm just, I've been looking forward to this interview to learn more about you and for, also for you to share some of your wisdom and experience with the audience. So I thought we should just start by having you share your background and how you ended up as a speaker.
1: Yeah. So I hold this belief that sometimes the things in life that have hurt you the most are the very things you can use to help other people. And this was certainly true for me, though I fought against that and avoided it at all cost for a long, long time. So the quick version of my story is that I was abandoned by my, by my birth parents as a baby and immediately entered into the foster care system. By the time I was like three or four or five years old, because of some of the stuff I had gone through, I was unbelievably angry at any and every adult that would sort of come into my life it's it's almost as if every adult that came into my life i assumed was going to do to me what my biological parents did to me which was sort of wash their hands of me and sort of give up on me and so the way i dealt with that is just by being really angry really oppositional really defiant and then i went through sort of all sorts of physical sexual emotional trauma as a foster kid and at 14, I ended up with what would be my final set of foster parents. Mind you, this was the, this was the 12th family that I ended up with because of how sort of angry and oppositional I was. I would, I would actually keep track of how quickly I could get kicked out of foster homes and I sort of kept score like it was a video game. Okay, uh, But, but uh, these foster parents slowly but completely changed my life and sort of the way that they dealt with me, the way in which they approached me, the the patience that they had with me. And so this is sort of the difference that they made in my life was sort of the genesis of of the work that I do and that I do as a speaker, which is I, I work with and speak to either groups of kids or folks primarily that work with kids. And so my whole message is around that every kid is one caring adult away from being a success story. And the genesis of that is Rodney and Christine, that final set of foster parents for me, and because I was that sort of kid who, who desperately needed that one caring adult in his life growing up when things were so unstable.
0: What did they do differently? Were there certain ways they talked to you or approaches they had? Anything stand out that you could share?
1: I mean, there's all sorts of subtleties, but two things that immediately sort of bubble to the surface for me. Number one, they didn't take my acting out personally. Well, kids don't talk out, they will act out. And so if they're, if they're frustrated or hurt or angry about something, they'll often take it out on the, whoever's just sort of in their atmosphere. And, and it can feel very personal, but it's often about something that happened prior to you or someone that hurt them that actually wasn't you. So they had this incredible ability not to take it personally, which helped them keep their foot on the gas, helped them not lose hope, helped them not take my days that I would just be absolutely like a terrible person to them. I mean, no doubt it must have been challenging, but they didn't, they didn't own it or sort of deposit the check the way that I saw other adults that I interacted with. And then secondly, they were a phenomenal mix of tough and tender, depending on what I needed. A lot of the research shows that, you know, kids need that sort of adult who will be tough and tender, who will be both firm and fair. And so the idea of tender is like, okay, we need to obviously protect kids from things that they didn't cause and that they're vulnerable to, and particularly when they're younger. But a lot of this stuff I'm talking about, particularly when I'm you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, these were foolish, stupid, idiotic choices that I was making. And I needed to feel the weight of that. I needed to feel the consequence of that so that the, so that the desire to change shifted from my parents or that counselor I was forced to go see or that teacher, and, and that desire became my own desire that you know, this isn't going well. I, I don't like the consequences of the choices that I'm making. Therefore, I want to change. Therefore, I'm listening. Okay, what do you got to say now?
0: Mm-hmm. I think this is great advice for kids, but also for adults. <laughs> do you find that you can often translate a lot of the same advice for adults or do you try to just focus on kids?
1: I mean, often I don't I don't nerd out on it quite the degree that I do sort of how does this apply to you know, our relationship with kids. I have my own, I have my own children now and, you know, which is wonderful and challenging and incredible and difficult all at the same time, often within the, within a 20 minute time period. But I mean, one thing that definitely does translate to me as an adult is, is I don't, to me, the best person to give advice to is someone who asked for advice. Yeah. My general life practice is like, as an adult, Now is I don't give advice to people who haven't asked for it because they haven't yet put themselves in a posture, in a position where they go, okay, I've kind of tried it myself and it's been frustrated or not as good as I'd like it to be. So, okay, now I'm, now I'm open to this. Now I'm listening. And that was my, I mean, I was sort of that sort of hard hearted and you know, I don't need anybody. I don't, I don't need advice. I don't want your advice. I don't need your help. I don't want your help until I was 17 and a half and I went to jail because I wrote a bunch of hot checks uh, just for silly, stupid teenage things. But my foster parents had the choice to bail me out that night, but they chose to leave me in there uh, for about 12 hours. And those 12 hours were game-changing to me. That, that's sort of where that, that, it tipped the scales of like, you know, this is my biological parents' fault, or this is, you know, the foster care system's fault that I landed up in, in this situation or that situation to, oh, I see. Like, yeah, I've, I've had some things happen to me that aren't fair, but so is everyone. And the stuff I'm doing now, like, that's not my biological parents' fault. This is my fault. And so having to sit in that, that jail cell, that was, as weird as it sounds, such a gift from my parents, though, you know, my language towards them when they said, we'll see you tomorrow was anything but, hey, thanks a lot for that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it goes with what you started out with, saying that sometimes your struggles can be great lessons and lead you to bigger things or something along those lines, right? Yes. Yeah. I I mean,
1: it's interesting. When I first started speaking, so today and for the past five years, I I speak 99% to adults who work with kids. So that might be parents or teachers or social workers or guidance counselors. But before that, I I used to speak directly to sort of middle school and high school students. And for the first five years that I spoke to them, I never once told my story of growing up as a foster kid. I never even danced close to any of the things I just told you the last couple minutes. Because I was, I don't think I had dealt with it myself I don't think I saw how it could be such a specific story could have broad application. And I didn't want to come off as a whiner. I didn't want to come off as someone who was complaining, but then, you know, one day I just said, okay, I'm just going to kind of talk about it. And the response was 10 X any other talk I had given. And I would say at this point, I was not a skilled or seasoned speaker. It was that, you know, vulnerability leads to vulnerability. There's a psychological term known as appropriate self-disclosure, meaning sort of when you appropriately self-disclose, it triggers a psychological reaction in that other person to begin to think of how that parallels to things in their own life that they're facing. So, you know, even though you're telling a specific Story. I was, I grew up in foster care. I was left by my parents. Surprisingly, people aren't going, Well, I wasn't left by my parents, so there's nothing to learn here. They transplant those moments where they felt left or abandoned, even if it wasn't by people, but by situations, by their own expectations, by their own situations in life. And that really opens up their mind and heart, I've found, because uh, I think we learn far more from people's failures and screw-ups than we do simply and only their successes.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I've never heard the term appropriate disclosure, but it makes sense. Are there rules for that? Or how do you know what's appropriate and what's not?
1: It's a good question. So I was reading a book by a guy named Stephen Furtick, and he gave this sort of phrase, sort of like a bumper sticker phrase, but because it was sort of creatively worded, it never left my mind, which is heal the wound, reveal the scar. And my interpretation of that is like, look, you've got to to deal with the issue yourself. You've got to get clarity on it, a little bit of distance on it. Otherwise, you can unintentionally come across bitter or just like doing therapy on stage where it's like, hey, here's this crazy thing that happened to me and I have no lesson from it. I have no insight from it. I have nothing I've pulled from it yet. And so for me, I believe one of the most unusual tools that has helped me significantly improve as a speaker is counseling for myself. And I would make the same argument, even if I didn't have the sort of challenging upbringing that I had, but in, in every speaker I've ever seen that, and now, I mean, we have a speaker agency within the education market. And our speakers speak at a thousand different schools every year. And the only through line I see in any speaker who is, who connects phenomenally to the audience. And even if they're speaking to kids, they could be like way older than the kids, kind of close in age to the kids, male, female, have an athletic background, a a crazy story background like mine, uh, you know, the, the ideal childhood. The through line I've seen is that they're comfortable in their own skin. That there's a a genuineness, a wholeness. Who they are and what they're saying is very congruent. And I think that can only come from, at least for me, counseling, getting clear on that, understanding what my quirks are, what my flaws are, what what the beauty of those things are. And understanding what my strengths are and, and how I can use that
0: mm-hmm. to help others. Yeah, I totally agree. So I want to take a step back because I'm interested in finding out how you got started as a speaker. Sure. So,
1: all right. So one of the ways I acted out, one of several, one of the ways I acted out in high school was I sort of became the class clown kid. I was overweight as a kid. I was freckled. And I was a foster kid. And I learned at at some point, ninth grade or so, that if I could self-deprecate, and then if I could make others laugh, that they would laugh with me, not at me. So I became very addicted to that as a form of self-soothing and as a form of protection. And most teachers, understandably, were really annoyed by this. But one of my teachers sort of approached me and, and sort of made a bargain with me. And she's like, look, you can't, I mean, come on, you can't act like this in class. You're like derailing these other kids. This is not appropriate. She said, if, if, if you'll work with me and like chill out during class, the last five minutes, you can have the floor. And as long as you keep it appropriate, you can get up there and just sort of, you know, uh, get it out of your system and, and do your thing. And I remember she said something like this. She said, Josh, you know, your, your friends don't, your peers aren't listening to you just because you're funny. They're listening to you because for some reason you're able to gain their attention. And she said, when you have someone's attention, you have a responsibility to do something meaningful with that. And it, it wasn't like a game changing moment for me, but it kind of rattled around in my mind. And I would think about it every, you know, 32 days or so. Like, (laughs) what does that, like, what does that mean? And and it's weird. And and she's kind of like, give me a pep talk or something. But From that sort of initial gesture from a teacher, I ran for a leadership position within the school. I won. Because of that, I had to start going around to like the middle school and elementary school and giving a sort of a high school propaganda talk of like, hey, you're going to be at the high school in a few years. And here's some of the clubs you should join. And here are some best practices. And then I just had a handful of teachers say, Hey, that was cool. And the students seemed to enjoy listening to you. You can come back sometime and talk about whatever you want. Now the challenge was, I had no idea what that whatever I would want would be. But I just kept saying yes, even though I was scared, even though I was terrified, even though my desire to do it at that point was way more for my ego than for the benefit of others or the benefit of my audience or listeners. But I just kept saying yes. And slowly, painfully, painstakingly, you know, after every talk got 0.001% closer to what I felt like a, a genuine message was for me that I could share. Yeah, I've been doing this now for 15 years, several thousand keynotes at this point. And looking back on it, the fact of the matter is it you don't write a great speech. You earn it. And you earn it by like is sort of a crappy first draft, and you try it, and eleven percent of it works, and eighty nine percent of it completely fails, and you rework the eighty nine percent, and it it goes slightly better next time, and 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 each and every time you learn, you get closer to your voice, you get closer to your style, and and each time it gets a little bit better.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. How did things change? You mentioned it took you 5 years of speaking to finally start inserting your own personal stories and vulnerabilities. Did you notice that your audience responded differently when you did that? And if so, what was the difference? I mean,
1: yes, day and night different. It was it was a, it, the difference between sort of a, you know, a golf clap and hey, thanks versus again, remember at this point, I'm speaking to kids, a line of kids saying, oh man, that story you shared, you know, my uncle recently died and he and I were really close. And that's just sort of upended my life. The fascinating thing to me was these line of kids weren't there saying you were funny or that was cool or, hey, that wasn't boring. Thank you. It it was again, that idea of vulnerability leads to vulnerability. Something in my vulnerability had struck a nerve that gave them the courage or the permission to think about something in their own life that was heavy or that was challenging or that was difficult and gave them a little perspective, a little bit of a case study there in front of them of like, hey, I'm not perfect. I went through this difficult thing. Here's a couple ways I've tried to process it and deal with it and work through it and you can do the same. And the fascinating thing to me was like, I remember this kid. Yeah, my uncle died. I never spoke of an uncle. I never spoke of one of my relatives dying. I've never met a biological relative. But again, that was sort of his transferable lesson. And that has always been incredibly fascinating to me.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for speakers who are hesitant about using their own life stories? And like, I know you said earlier, you want to kind of process those stories and heal from them before you get up on stage and share them. But let's say they've done the work, but they're still hesitant Mm -hmm. about bringing them out. Do you have any advice? I mean, I've just, I've never seen
1: anything connect more with an audience than sort of strategically and intentionally throwing yourself under the bus for the benefit of your audience. (laughs) now there's there's a hundred different ways you can do this. You might have a compelling emotional personal story like mine. It might be that you're you know talking to a group of salespeople or colleagues, and you can tell that hysterical now not then story of how you just completely blew it and you know this ego crushing, you felt so terrible. You did this you did this completely idiotic thing. You felt humiliated in front of everyone. And those things are so I've never seen anything connect more to an audience. Now mind you, I've done a couple thousand keynotes and and I was primarily self-taught as a public speaker, but now I've gone back and I'm doing postgraduate work at Harvard and so much of their research is showing this idea as well that the people connect and learn and trust more from a communicator who is willing to be vulnerable by sharing some failures, by sharing some hardships, in whatever ways it is appropriate to that particular context. So again, sort of strategically throwing yourself under the bus for your audience will be of glorious benefit to them. And just try it once, like just say, all right, well, I'll, you know, I'll kind of sprinkle in, maybe you're going to give a 20 minute talk. So you go, all right, I'll sprinkle in like two minutes here and just, just watch. That would be my challenge to you. Don't like rework your entire talk. Don't rewrite your entire talk. Just, just find an area where you can be vulnerable, where you can throw yourself under the bus and watch what happens. And then you decide for yourself whether or not it's, it's a worthy endeavor.
0: So when you're preparing for a talk, is there a formula or a process you follow to make sure like checkpoints, like, okay, I have three really vulnerable stories where I look like an idiot. I have two stories that might move people to tears. Like, do you have (laughs) that kind of checklist?
1: No, not quite. I mean, there's a couple different ways I think through this, particularly when I'm writing something from scratch. Number one, I always want my introduction to do the bragging for me. So there is a valid argument and there is valid science that, that as a communicator, you need to be not only viewed as trustworthy, but perceived as trustworthy even before you get up there. So to me, I go, my, the introduction, how I am introduced to me is the beginning of my speech. So what does that mean? That means I don't just leave it to whoever's going to introduce me to kind of wing it and say what, whatever they so wish. When I'm speaking at an event, depending on the context in the audience, I script that three to four sentence introduction for that event planner, because that is the equivalent of the beginning of my speech. That can set up sort of, here are the things that he's done that are noteworthy, the context to the message, so that when I get up there, I don't have to make that case for myself, that case has already been made by someone that they already know and that they trust so that I can begin to sort of do that strategic throwing myself under the bus. That's one way in which I think about it. And then there's another thing that I do that's absurd which is when I'm doing a, a, a new talk. So maybe for example, a, a TEDx talk I did like a year and a half ago. This is a brand new talk. Once I get the talk to what I feel like is maybe it's sort of 60% there, I will run a focus group of the talk because this is the only way for me to accelerate identifying what the holes are in the talk, what's unclear, what's confusing, and where it sort of led to rabbit trails in the audience mind because I haven't circled back to certain issues. So very practically, here's what this means. I'll write the talk. I'll be like, all right, it's kind of 60% there. I will stand in my living room with my laptop, turn on the webcam, hit record, and I would just film a version of me giving the talk. Now, mind you, a TED talk, it's a bit shorter, So if it's something longer, I probably wouldn't send someone an entire like 60-minute talk. But maybe I would go, yeah, this intro I'm really struggling with. So maybe I would just film that five-minute portion. But regardless, I film that video, that talk that I feel like is 60% there. And then I sort of pull together a group of people that I think can be helpful in giving me feedback. This this group of, of folks is made up 20% of fellow speakers and 80% of whoever the actual audience would be. There's a tendency for me to be like, hey, my speaker buddies, we nerd out about speaking. Let me just send it only and exclusively to them. There's a unique perspective that they can give you, but there's also something that they're completely blind to, which is sort of like being that first time audience member. So I, I send this out to them through a uh, a Google survey. And there's four questions. And the survey is anonymous, meaning I don't ask them for their name. And when I send them the email asking them to fill it out, I very clearly in bold say, please be brutally honest. I want you to make me cry. (laughs) You have to give people permission to be brutal with you. Otherwise, they won't. And you also need to set it up by it being anonymous where it feels safe for them to do such. Mm -hmm. So here are the four questions. It's something like, number one, what was your favorite part of the talk? What I'm looking for there is, do I think point B is the most interesting or the most compelling or the most impactful, but everyone else is saying point A? Huh, okay. Do I need to move point A so that doesn't get sort of a, overshadowed by point B, which I thought was more important. So number one, what was your favorite part of the talk? Number two, what in the talk was unclear? Not was anything unclear, but what was unclear? Assuming something must have been. Number three, what did I just ask you to do? So almost all talks, whether you're talking to a group of parents or teachers like I might, talking to a group of colleagues tends to have some sort of call to action, some sort of, now that we've discussed this, here's what comes next. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Here's what I want to challenge you to think about doing. So I asked them very clearly, what did I just ask you to do? And for me, that's very helpful of, I might've thought I was super clear in my call to action, but if if they're not saying sort of 80% the same thing, something's going to arrive here. And then the last question is how could this talk be 10% better? And the language of 10% better, I found to be very freeing to people. It's not, how how could I improve this? But how could this be 10% better? And then folks will tend to sort of zero in on a minute detail that could be a little bit stronger, a little bit
0: clearer. Hmm. And then once you have all that feedback, do you do the process again? Or what, what do you do with it? It's a good question. So once I have that information,
1: I just sort of look through it. I try to identify themes. It's not like I take every person's bullet point and go, all right, I got to apply that. I got to apply that. You know, if, if 10 people are giving me feedback, I'm just looking for themes. All right, man, three or four people all said, well, what happened to Rodney? Do you still keep in touch with your foster parents? What going, what's going on there? Okay. That's clearly something distracting them in their mind. I didn't close the loop. I need to address that. So I just look for those themes. I try to address it. And then at that point, I feel like, okay, now I have done the work where I'm ready to deliver this, you know, for the presentation or for the thing that really matters.
0: Mm -hmm. At this point, do you have a few different talks you give? Are you still building new talks or what's the process like for your speaking business today?
1: I have two talks that are outstanding and then I have typically one talk that's in development that's terrible. <laughs> uh, and so that's my situation right now. I have two talks that are excellent, and I have one right now that I'm just completely lost. It's terrible. It there's a there's there's like a
0: little bit of good in there, but not much yet. But that's okay. I wanna go back to your work at Harvard. What is your what are you studying? Is it communication?
1: Yes, persuasive communication.
0: And what is there a thesis or a focus in there that you're working on well i mean for me i'm trying
1: to all of my skill in public speaking has been self taught and so i'm trying to go back and a identify what the gaps in my knowledge are because i don't know and and then b learn learn sort of best practices and techniques so for example before i started studying with this course i had no knowledge of outlines that there, that there's sort of, you know, five or six sort of outlines that have been around for years and years and years and years that can provide sort of a skeleton or the scaffolding so that you're not looking at a blank canvas. You're more so looking at a blank canvas. It has a template on it. So, I mean, for example, what I do for a living is an example of Monroe's Motivated Sequence. That's a, that's a specific outline. And when I look at Monroe's Motivated Sequence and I look at one of those two talks that I told you today is excellent, it almost exactly follows Monroe's Motivated Sequence. But when I think about those same talks seven years ago, nine years ago, 11 years ago, the very reason they weren't yet excellent was not only at-bats, time on stage, just repetition, but also because I I had no knowledge of some of the missing elements and and components that would be most persuasive and most helpful in moving an audience.
0: Hmm. Are those templates available to the
1: public? 100%. So if you were to Google Monroe's motivated sequence example, you'll see it. And it's, it's incredibly helpful and incredibly freeing. I would say one of my greatest burdens as a public speaker was writing new talks. And part of that was because I felt like it was a blank 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 canvas, and now, with like an outline such as Monroe's motivated sequence, I go okay well here's here's sort of the framework, and now, instead of obsessing about what are the what are the pieces, I can obsess over you know what do I want to put in there what 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 story do I want to open with, what sort of third party proof do I want to put put here? So it really gives you a roadmap that you can follow that is, that is tested and proven for, for centuries.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. Do you have any uh, big picture advice for speakers that you like to give, you know, if they're thinking about pursuing professional speaking that can help them to be successful at it? Well, I mean,
1: it's interesting because there's obviously a lot of sort of online training and courses and all of that around sort of the business of public speaking. And it's certainly a real business, a real market, a real opportunity. The thing that I see is so much focus on the business side of things and a, and what feels like less focus on the speech. And the speech is really the product that you're selling. Now, if you have a phenomenal product and no marketing or terrible marketing, well, obviously, you're going to be at a disadvantage. But to me, what my whole mantra is like, You really, really, really want to spend time getting that speech as good as you possibly can. And then when you layer the marketing and smart business strategies and methodologies on top of that, it's going to exponentially help you spread your message, get booked and paid to speak. Because, I mean, at least in my market, there is... 99, this is not a scientific number, but this is my guess. 99% of speeches that folks get paid for happen for only one of three reasons. Number one, I saw Angela speak at that thing and I want her to speak at our thing. So that's option one. Option two is my buddy, my colleague, my coworker saw Angela speak at that thing, and maybe she should speak at our thing. Now, to nerd out on that one a little bit, that one you'll notice now you, now, you have, now you have multiple decision makers in the room. So, that's why in that situation, if the person who saw you isn't the sole decision maker, but they have to go back and convince their boss there's a great example of why your marketing materials must be congruent with how good they're saying you are on stage. And then number three, I saw a video of Angela speaking and I think her message would be a fit for our event. All three of those examples, the primary foundation of those being successful is the speech itself. Even the video. I mean, even the video, like the movie has to be good to in order in order to cut a great trailer. Yeah. So the the speech really matters.
0: Yeah. I often feel like each speech is an audition for your next speech. It's, it is the marketing for your speech. So you got, you got to make sure it's good.
1: (laughs) So there's, I mean, there is a sort of, there's not a lot of little tricks, but there is one little trick that's interesting is towards the end of my speeches. I always make a mention that, Hey, if you would like me to come give this sort of presentation to your group, to your people, to your team, to your staff, here's a step to take. And there is some sort of disconnect that I don't quite get in the audience that when you're giving a speech that don't quite go, oh, she could come do that for us or in our town or our school or our community. So like you, it's really important to be overtly clear that this is what I do. I'd love to come share this message with your group. And here's the next step if you're interested in that.
0: Yeah, great advice. So, Josh, how can we get more information about you and keep in touch?
1: Sure. My website is joshship, ship2ps like a boat, dot com, And everything that I'm up to there is, uh, is linked there.
0: Is there anything you want to promote?
1: Not at all. Okay. <laughs> I'm all good.
0: Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing some of your experiences, your stories, and your advice. This is super helpful, and it's just it's great to know more about you.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Angela.
0: Well, there you have it. My interview with Josh Shipp. Huge fan. Love what he's doing. He shared so much good Advice today, too. And I just really loved hearing how he arrived at his learnings, his lessons, and the sharing of his wisdom. He's just, he's someone that I really, I, uh, I'm a fan. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Told Video, original thoughtful storytelling for your brand. Here to help you with your next step in marketing a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. If you contact Rebecca through June 1st to receive a pack of four 15-second social media videos along with your full video, reach out for a free phone consultation and quote and to find out more at toldvideo.com. If you like today's episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps more people find the show, and it also makes me feel pretty cool. So just, you know, take 15 seconds if you, if you don't mind. This podcast has been a production of the Speaker Sisterhood and was recorded at the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. You can learn more at speakersisterhood.com. Well, that does it for me today, my friends. As always, stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time.